New Life Church. That's you. Good morning. <laughs> you awake? Of course you are. Good morning to you and those who are online joining us in that way. Good morning to you. Welcome to our service. And those of you online, you probably haven't been outside yet. You should get outside. It is a beautiful day today, isn't it? Wasn't it nice just to get out there? It's minus 2 and not like minus 22 or 32. So I hope you have a chance at some point to enjoy this balmy weather, maybe a nice walk or something like that. We've all been cooped up inside for a while. Ah, oh, as um, Daniel alluded to, we're beginning this morning a, a new series through the Gospel of Mark. 14 weeks, going to take us right to Easter Sunday. We're going to close on Easter Sunday with the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's fitting. We're going to look at the resurrection there at that point. Uh, and as, as he said, he's excited to discover what I'm going to say. And, and I'm excited too to discover that. I, I'm, I'm not sure where we're all going to go here through this series, but uh, uh, we're, I think we're going to, to, to explore Jesus, his life, and his teaching in deeper ways. And I'm sure we'll all kind of discover new insights that will help us uh, in our own spiritual growth and life. Uh, that's what a gospel is. A gospel is a record of the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got four of them in the Bible, right? If you've been around your Bible just a little while, you probably know we've got four gospels. The gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, and the gospel of John. Now, why in the world do we have four? God, couldn't you have made it easier? Just like put it all together and just give us one story. Now, some people have tried to do that. They've tried to kind of compile that and kind of collapse it, merge it all in just a one account of Jesus to just try to figure out how everything fits together. Don't do that. Don't do that. God did not want us to do it. There's a reason that God left for us four Gospels because He wanted us to see Jesus and the Gospel in 4D. Okay? Uh, I watched a little bit of football Watched a bit of football yesterday. It's NFL playoff season. The Patriots lost. Pastor Daniel's going to be moping around the office for a week. And it makes me so happy. Makes me so happy. Not going to lie. But you know, watching football, if you watch football, you know, sometimes there's like an important play and we need to get a close-up. What happened there, right? And so then there's one angle that zeroes in and you, and you see this event from this angle. Did his toe touch the line? Well, we see something from this angle but we don't see it all, so then, then they give us another angle at that exact same play, that same event, and it gives us another perspective, and they maybe give us another one, and when you look at all these different angles together, you get a fuller picture of what happened, of reality. And God in His wisdom, that's what He's done. He's given us these four perspectives on the life and the teaching of Jesus that give us a fuller picture of Him and His gospel. We can see Him in 4D. So God has given us these four gospels. Uh, because each has a unique perspective, a unique angle, and because each has a unique author and a unique audience. So you got the Gospel of Matthew. And so the Hildebrand family, we just started reading the Gospel of Matthew because it's our goal to go through the New Testament uh, as a family this year. And so last week we were in Matthew chapter 1. You ever read Matthew chapter 1? Why would you begin a book that way? Right? It begins with... You know, Abraham had so-and-so, and then Isaac had so-and-so, and he was begat so-and-so, and he was the father of so-and-so, and name after name after name. 
That's the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you would have brought that story to a publisher today, they would have said, I love the story, great ending. You've got to change that beginning. That's just not going to work. But, but Matthew was a Jewish man speaking to a Jewish audience, and his concern was to show people that Jesus was the promised Messiah that God would send, that Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies of the Messiah. And so if you look in the Gospel of Matthew, that's, what he, that, that, that's kind of his bent. He'll look into the Old Testament and show how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies that He is the Messiah. And that's, that's Matthew's perspective. And then you have Luke. Luke was like an investigative reporter, right? He's writing to a young man named Theophilus. So Luke writes the Gospel of Luke. He writes the book of Acts to try to show Theophilus that he can have confidence in his faith, that these things are true. They happened. And so Luke kind of takes the tack of an investigative reporter. He's got a lot more historical detail. So he's the one that's telling us, you know, when Jesus was born, it was this year, this guy was king. Quirinius was governor of Syria, you know, when, when, when Caesar had that census. And he gives us this sort of detail to give his audience confidence that these things are not fables or fairy tales. These things are true. And then you've got John. Now, John was the last book, uh, last gospel written of the four. John was one of the key, closest followers, friends of Jesus. He was with Jesus and a few others when they went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember, Jesus kind of peeled back his earthliness to reveal more of his divine glory. And, and, and John beheld that, that side of Jesus. And so John kind of, his angle is, 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 is he focuses less on some of the narratives, these stories, and focuses more on the theological teaching of Jesus, the spiritual significance of who he is and what he's done. And that's John's angle. And then you come to Mark. What is Mark all about? As Daniel said, like Mark's kind of the, we might call him the runt of the litter. You know, if the four gospels were four puppies, Mark is the runt of the litter. Even if I think of like all the verses that I've got memorized, I, I got them in the other books, but I'm trying to kind of pull out some of, the, some of Mark because Mark's a little bit different. Um, it gets the least attention, and yet it's important. It's the earliest gospel of the four that were written. Matthew and Luke uh, borrowed from Mark, kind of as some of their source material as they wrote their gospel. So Mark is the very earliest account that we have of Jesus' life and His teaching. Now, the, the, the gospel of Mark doesn't actually identify the author. You see, back in those days, books, not like today where you've got the dust jacket, right? It's got the little bio in the back. John is married to Sally and they have five kids and they live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Like, it doesn't have that sort of detail, and so, we don't actually have the author identified, but very early tradition tells us it was Mark. There was an early Christian bishop, kind of a second generation after the apostles, the early 100s. His name was Papias. We still have his writing, and he says this, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. And so, according to Papias, Mark is like uh, a spiritual son of Peter, who was the chief of the 12 disciples. He, Peter was like Mark's um, mentor. And so even at the end of Peter's first letter, 1 Peter 5, Peter closes by saying this, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. It's probably this guy. Okay, not his biological son, but his spiritual son. 
He's Mark's mentor. We actually find in Acts chapter 12 that when Peter was arrested for proclaiming Christ, thrown into prison, that early church is gathered in the home of John Mark. John was the, the Hebrew name. Mark was the Greek name, John Mark. And when Peter was miraculously released from prison in the dead of night in answer to the prayers of those Christians, maybe you remember the story, it's kind of funny, right? He's released from prison. He goes to this house where that first church is gathered to pray for his release. He knocks on the door and they don't, they don't let him in because they don't believe it's him. Lord, would you release Peter? Hey, Peter's at the door. No, it can't be. Lord, would you release Peter? We're supposed to chuckle a little bit. God's got a sense of humor. And so that relationship goes way back. And so here Mark is a young guy, an understudy of Peter, asking Peter all sorts of questions about Jesus, what he did, what he said, and he creates a record of that. And that's what we have here, the gospel of Mark. Now, it's probably written by, by this guy, Mark, and who's he writing to? Well, he's likely writing, again, the letter doesn't identify his audience, but but scholars think he was likely writing to the, a Christian church in Rome in maybe the late 50s, early mid-60s AD. Now, at that point, uh, Nero was emperor of Rome, and Nero was a bit of a bad dude because during his reign, a fire broke out in Rome, destroyed much of Rome. He was angry. He wanted to scapegoat the fire on someone. He hated the Christians, and so he blamed the Christians for the fire, and it was a pretext to persecute the church. And so history tells us that he would actually light his, his garden parties outside by stringing up uh, Christians and burning them to death as human torches to light his garden parties. He would take uh, animal skins and put them on, wrap Christians in animal skins and then set wild beasts on them to tear them apart as entertainment for his guests, okay? This is the church to which Mark is likely writing, and, and when you think of it in that terms, it's kind of interesting that he picks what he picks in his gospel to highlight because in that very first chapter of Mark, he says very little about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but he adds a little detail that the other gospel writers don't add. He says that Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Now, Matthew and, and, and Luke don't say that, but he says he was with the wild animals. And I think what he's saying is, you know, just like how some of you are being torn apart by wild animals, Jesus too had wild animals set upon him. And you see this theme throughout the gospel of Mark, right? This theme of that Jesus was opposed and persecuted, and we too, those who follow him, we can expect too to be likewise, face trial, face opposition. And so kind of, the, if the, there's like uh, one of the key verses in, in, in Mark, it's Mark chapter 8, where he says, whoever would follow me, Jesus says, must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me daily. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so he's probably writing to this group of Christians in Rome, living in troubled and transformative times, kind of like we do, you know, in a much smaller scale. So maybe there's some aspects of, of Mark's angle here on Jesus and the gospel that will be helpful for us in our day. So why is Mark overlooked? Like, why is it the runt of the litter if that's the case? Maybe it's because it's the shortest of the Gospels. It's only 16 chapters long. And, and it's short because 
it's not very sophisticated in its language. It's not very artistic. You know, like it, it doesn't take a lot of time to do plot and character development. Like, you know that friend you have that's like, doesn't do small talk? They just come in and they're, they're just direct. They say what they want to say. They're abrupt. And then they leave before the conversation is over. You're like, I don't think we were done. But there they go. Do you have a friend like that? If you're not sure, you probably are that friend. So that's kind of like Mark. Mark is that guy. You know, the other three Gospels, they all have their origin stories. The birth stories in Matthew and Mark and John talks about the Word was with God. The Word became flesh. Mark doesn't do He just gets right into it. No origin stories. The other Gospels all have a really nice ending. Jesus rises from the dead, meets the disciples. He gives them the final charge, the mission they're supposed to carry out in the world, and then he goes to heaven. The end. We all clap. But Mark is different. You ever gotten to the end of the Gospel in Mark and gone, what? What happened? Mark doesn't seem to have an ending. In fact, put it up on the screen there, Rob. This is the very last words of the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, or Mark chapter 16, Jesus is risen from the dead. These women go, they don't know that yet, they go to his tomb to, to find a couple of angels that announce the news, Jesus is alive, he is risen, and this is how the gospel ends. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Now, some people have been so troubled by that in early church history, they added an ending. Maybe you have in your Bible, like, you have a few more verses after that, but they're in italics, and they're in a parenthesis, and there's a little footnote that says, this ending isn't actually in the earliest and best manuscripts, because people thought, surely the story can't end that way. So they put a proper ending to it, where, you know, the disciples meet the risen Jesus, He gives them the final charge, you're going to go preach the gospel to all of creation, and you're going to cast out demons and heal the sick, and you're going to handle poisonous snakes. Did you know that there are actually churches in West Virginia, the Appalachians, that's their shtick? In accordance with those words, they actually, a part of their routine churches, services, they handle poisonous snakes. Aren't you thankful you're a part of New Life Church? That just seems like a strange church growth strategy. But it's actually taken from this ending that Mark didn't write. Because people thought, he's missing an ending. Why is that? Maybe we'll find out. So it's a bit of a strange gospel. Mark moves really quick. He opens in chapter 1, verse 1, with this statement, very matter of fact. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. One sentence, and then he launches into it a few verses on the John the Baptist, three verses on the baptism of Jesus, Two verses on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which almost a whole chapter is devoted to in other Gospels where they actually tell these three different temptations that Satan uh, offers to Jesus. He doesn't have any of that. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness 40 days. Move on. He's trying to quickly get to what is his key statement, his main idea, the summary of his letter, which we have in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. After John was put in prison, that is John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now here it is. This is the key statement. The first words of Jesus in this gospel. Verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent 
and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. There in that statement, Jesus is giving this, this reality. With me is coming, is being established the kingdom of God. There's this new reality. And then there's a call to respond. Repent and believe the good news. Reality, the kingdom has come. Response, repent and believe the good news. This is the key statement. The rest of uh, Mark's gospel will kind of unpack in what way did Jesus establish God's kingdom and what does it look like for those of us who follow him to live out the revolutionary nature of God's kingdom in our lives. But what is the kingdom of God? The gospels talk a lot about it, but what is it? I mean, we pray about it. We're called to, right? In the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So we're called to pray for God's kingdom to come. Well, maybe there's a clue in those very next words. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? What is God's kingdom? Well, it's where His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven where He reigns and everything is as He desires and intends it to be. His kingdom is wherever His way holds sway. That's kind of the simplest I can make it. Wherever God's way holds sway, that is the kingdom of God. In whatever place or whatever person or people, there is the kingdom of God. You know, each country, each place, each group of people has its own culture, right? That's one of the beauties of traveling. Some of you have traveled. You have these different cultures, like different, different um, practices, different traditions, different values. I love travel. Been to Africa, been to Mongolia. You know, in Mongolia, they love fatty meat. So my uncle and aunt, they were Westerners. They would go to the market at the very end of the day when all of the meat had been picked over because they, they would find the best cuts of meat. Because in their culture, they just wanted to eat the fat. The fat was the delicacy, and they left the good meat. That's just the way they did things there, right? I remember our car breaking down as we were traveling in Mongolia, having to kind of trudge to this little gear, this little yurt with nomads. And we walk in there, and they had a pot of bubbling fermented horse milk on the fire. It tastes as bad as it sounds. Trust you me. But that's what they do. How did they know we were coming? They didn't. Hospitality is the highest virtue. You're always ready to receive guests. That's just their thing. You know, each culture has its own ways. The kingdom of God is the place that is governed by God's laws, His values, His priorities, which are unlike, which are different from the ways and the values and the priorities of any human culture, any human way. And so wherever the kingdom of God comes, transformation comes. Change happens. History tells us that when the gospel came to Iceland, you know those bloodthirsty Vikings? And they received and accepted the gospel. The king of the Vikings in Iceland made a decree. We still have it in the records where he said, no longer will we leave our infants in the snow to perish. We're not doing that anymore. Because the gospel changes things. You know, back in the day, you have a kid, sickly, deformed, what are you going to do? You leave him in the snow to perish. 
the ways change. No longer will we need, leave our children in the snow to perish. When the kingdom of God comes, things change because God's way is different than the way of the world. And that's what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different sort of kingdom, a different way of thinking, a different way of living. And so when Jesus says, my kingdom has come, repent. Now that's a word that, you know, it's kind of a churchy word for us, and, and we typically reduce it down to like say sorry for something bad you did, but that, it's way bigger than that. The word repent literally means to turn around, do a 180, and go the other way. A total change in orientation and direction. It, it speaks of a revolution. A revolution is, I mean, if you Google that, it just means a, a, an overthrowing of an old order and the establishment of a new order. It's when a dictator is overthrown and democracy is established. That's a revolution. Not just tinkering little changes here and there. Fundamental change. You know, like when fossil fuels go away, maybe someday, and everything is now electric cars, or, or when Kodak said, all oh, this whole digital camera thing, I don't think that's going to catch on. Yeah, we're just going to stick with film. You ever heard of Kodak? Yeah, they don't exist anymore. Messed up on that one. Because there's a revolution a totally new way of doing and thinking. And so when Jesus says, repent, what he's saying is, the kingdom of God is revolutionary. It involves a fundamental change, direction in the way you think, in the way you live. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, that word gospel, that's like another churchy word, right? We think like maybe that's like an invented Christian word. Uh, it's not. When Mark wrote and he used the word gospel, that was not a religious term. It was not an unusual term. It was a term that the people knew well there. It was a term that literally meant good news, but not just any good news. It, it, was, it, it was the announcement of a really important event in the life of, say, the, the emperor of Rome, Caesar, that, that brought great change and benefit to the people. And so, actually, we have this inscription that's uh, from the time of Caesar Augustus. Uh, and it's an inscription that de decrees that the birthday of the Emperor Augustus, which is in September, not August, figure that out, would now mark the beginning of the year when persons assumed civil service. They were actually reworking the calendar around the birthday of the Emperor Augustus so this was the gospel. This, this, this is the word, the, the gospel. It is a day that we must justly count as equivalent to the benefits of everything, if not in itself and in its own nature, at any rate, in the benefits it brings, talking about the, the, you know, the birthday of the emperor, inasmuch as it restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would have gladly welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to be the common blessing of all men. So when Mark uses this word gospel, right, they knew what that meant. No, it, 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 it's not the benefits that Caesar brings, but Jesus is bringing a new order, a new way that is good news, that brings great benefit to us. Repent and believe the good news. So, so Mark here is, is kind of just suggesting that God's kingdom is revolutionary, right? When God's kingdom is established, all things will be put right the way God desires and intends them to be. 
So here Jesus comes, and he makes this announcement. Time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, what do you think those very first people, those Jews were that heard that 2,000 years? Like, what would they have thought that was going to look like? When, all, when God puts all things right, we want that. What would that look like? They maybe thought, well, what that would mean is Jesus, he's going to come and he's going to overthrow the Romans, you know, our oppressors that forced their ways on us, you know, and, and, and to reestablish our own independence where we can do things our way. He's going to establish justice. He's going to make peace between nations and between people so there's no longer conflict. This kingdom will be a place of peace out in the community, out in society, in the nation, a place of prosperity, no more hunger, no more poverty, where everyone will have enough. That's maybe what they thought. A place of health, no more sickness and disease. What what did they think he was going to bring and do? What, What would this kingdom look like, I wonder? And so Jesus makes this announcement in Mark chapter 1, and he keeps um, preaching, proclaiming this good news about the kingdom. And people are amazed by what he says and his authority. And he casts out a demon in chapter 1, and, and, and people see his power to do the miraculous, and word spreads. And so in Mark 1.32, it says, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Word spread, this guy has the power to heal diseases. What would you do? You'd gather your loved one, and you'd make the trip. And people were coming from everywhere, and Jesus was healing their diseases. But in verse 35, the next verse, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now Simon, that's another name for Peter, Peter and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. There's a long lineup of sick people waiting to be healed. Let's go. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else other villages, so I can preach there also, for that's why I have come. So he did that. He he left, and they traveled other places, preaching in their synagogues. We find the next verse, verse 40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean, Jesus. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand, and he touched the leper. I'm not supposed to do that, but he did it. He touched the leper. He said, I am willing, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And I don't think we really fully understand what Jesus is doing, all the difference he's making in that moment. Because back in the day, I mean, if you were someone with leprosy, your problem wasn't just physical. It's not just that you had a disease, a sick body, right? Your disease meant you had broken relationships. It broke relationship with your family, with your community. You couldn't live at home. You couldn't live in town. You had to live in that encampment where the lepers lived outside the town. You were marginalized socially. You were destitute economically. I mean, they couldn't hold down a job. They would only feed themselves at the mercy of others as beggars who would throw them a penny here or there. So when Jesus heals this leprosy, he's making a statement. He's not just healing his body. He's He's healing him socially. He's healing him economically. That's all happening when he heals this leper. Maybe that's what his kingdom is about. Again, people kept coming to him. 
uh, verse 45. As a result, people could no longer enter a town, uh, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And then this story, this interesting little story that Daniel read a moment ago, chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, Jesus began, or again entered Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word, that is like he preached about the kingdom that he was bringing to them. And some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them, since they could not get, uh, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they couldn't make their way in the door, they, they climbed up to the roof, they made an opening in the roof, roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on there, kind of right in the middle of the room, you could, for dramatic effect, right? Before Jesus and all these onlookers. It says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat and walk. No. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. Hmm. That's not what he came for. That's not what he was looking for. He wanted to walk. But Jesus looks at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. That statement kind of perturbed some of the listeners we find in verse 6, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts because Jesus, he is God made flesh. He knows the hearts and the thoughts and the desires of every person. He can look into the heart, into the soul. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? Well, which is easier? Like say, Brian, your sins are forgiven. It's easy for me to say. No one really knows one way or the other. Or I can say, Brian, take, a, take up your mat, get up and walk. And e I mean, either, either your legs are healed and you get up and walk, or you don't. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, obviously, that's what he's getting at, than to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. But he continues in verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. The man got up, he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So what's that all about anyway? You know what Jesus is doing, right? Like he, he's, people are wanting him to fix their external problems, heal the body. But he's trying to show us, them and us, that, that what we need are not new legs, we need a new heart. What we need is a heart transformation. He looked into the life of this crippled man and he saw this man's greatest problem is not that he cannot walk. This man's greatest problem is that he is alienated from God because of his sin. And it's out of that alienation in his spirit that all sorts of these ill effects manifest themselves. It, that, that problem creates all these other problems. And so Jesus is saying, I'm not going to address the symptom. I'm going to address the source. 
You don't need new legs. You need a new heart. And so that's why He healed the man. He didn't heal the man just so he could walk. Why did He heal the man? To show people that He had the power to forgive sin. Because that's what people needed to know. They needed to know that through Jesus Christ, they could be reconciled to God. They could have a new relationship, fellowship with God that their sin had interrupted. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God begins within. And this is why Mark starts this way, because... Some people will think that what the kingdom of God would look like when everything is put right is, is, is it's all just kind of external stuff out in the world. It's about, you know, political systems and economic justice and racial justice and, and all of these things. And all of those things are good, but what Jesus is saying is those problems are symptoms of the true problem, which is alienation from God. When the heart changes, other things change. But if the heart doesn't change... You cannot fully and finally fix these other things. They cannot be set right. It has to begin in the heart. It has to begin in a reconciled relationship with God. That's the fundamental change that brings other change. And this is what Jesus is, in Matthew chapter 15... He's getting at when he's talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were preoccupied with external things, right? Fasting, washing their hands, doing this, not doing that. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 16, Why are you still so dull? Don't you wish you were as brave as Jesus? Just to say, Why are you so dull? Yeah, don't say that to somebody, just by the way. That's not the sermon takeaway. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? Don't need to explain that further. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, not unwashed hands and what you eat. You know what he's saying? Your problem is the heart. You know, like marriage breakdown? Conflict, strife, murder, theft, crime. It's all, when you trace it back, a heart problem. You're, 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 you're trying to manage the symptoms, but you're neglecting the cause, the source. Jesus says, I've come to, trans- to give you a new heart. To forgive your sins and bring you into right relationship with God. Because that's where it all begins. That's where change happens. Because our hearts are sick. The Bible says we're all sinners. We're all, all alienated from God. We've all gone our own way. And it's out of the overflow of that, that heart, where, where self is at the center instead of God, where self is at the center. I mean, that leads to all the, all the other problems, right? Like poverty and economic injustice flow from greed in the heart. If, you could, if, if a heart wasn't greedy, how would the world be different? Racism flows from pride. I'm better than you. It's a heart problem. Fatherlessness, marriage breakdown often flows from lust. It's a heart problem. 
Conflict, whether between nations or between people, interpersonal relationships, conflict comes from jealousy. It's a heart problem. So Jesus is saying, if the problem is the heart, then the solutions are not political. Ultimately, they're not social, they're not economic, but they're spiritual. And Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of His great Sermon on the Mount, You'd say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How, do you, how does the kingdom of God begin in a person? How do you enter it? By being poor in spirit. Which is to say, getting to that place where you recognize your utter neediness of God's mercy and grace. Jesus came to give forgiveness. That's where the kingdom begins. It begins within a new relationship with God, a reconciled relationship. And out of that, change comes. Change in individual lives, change in marriages, change in families and communities and whole societies. And it might seem like here in our land that religion has seen its day, the Christian faith has seen its day. But there are amazing things happening in the world. I was reading about Guatemala, which is a country full of many, much problem in the past, and the problems aren't all gone now, but I read an article speaking of the transformation, particularly in this one town called Almolonga, Guatemala, uh, which was transformed by the gospel from, uh, as this article said, it was a, this place was a center of human misery. Disease, poverty, strife, alcoholism, marital infidelity, and violence it was transformed from that into a community of prosperity, health, harmony, and peace when over 90% of their inhabitants became born-again Christians. When they heard the good news and they repented. When they were forgiven and their relationship with God changed and out of that in the heart flowed all of this led to all of this other change in all these other ways, and it completely remade the community. The kingdom of God begins within, Jesus says. It begins with heart transformation. And that's why that, you know, as, as a church, as much as it's obviously good and right and we should, you know, help hungry people and the poor and the orphans and provide social services... Not we, we, a church should never do that in place of the spiritual ministry of proclaiming the good news of Jesus and trying to lead people into that place where they, where, where, where they enter into this new relationship, where they are made new, because it's out of that that flow all this positive change. It begins within when we know God in a right relationship with Him. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. He didn't say repent and receive good advice. You know, like, okay, this is how you ought to live. You're kind of all living in ignorance, doing it this way. I'll show you God's way, and then you can go do it, a better way. So here, I'm going to give you some good teaching, good advice, counsel, won't even charge you. Now go and do it. Like, that would be great. If we just got some great counsel, right? But the gospel is better than that. The gospel that Jesus brings 
is not good advice, it's good news. And what is news? News is something, not that we have to go now and do, news is something that has already happened, something that's already true. And what is the good news? What has happened? Well, we know what the people there in Mark chapter 1 and chapter 2, that guy whose legs were healed and had this man say, your sins are forgiven, we have the benefit now of knowing the end of the story and knowing that Jesus, when he came, he was on a mission, not just to teach the way of God, but to go to the cross where he, as the Son of God, would die on that cross for our sin in our place. To pay all our debt to God and make a way for us through his own death and resurrection to receive the forgiveness of God and be reconciled and have fellowship with God. To know that we belong to him. To know his favor and all his benefits. To have abundant life. That's the good news. And, and, and it's more than that. The good news is that when you surrender yourself to God in repentance and saying, I'm going to stop going my way, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm going to now go this direction, I'm going to do life God's way, I'm going to repent of my sins and put my trust not in myself and my own wisdom, but I'm, I'm going to put my trust fully in Jesus Christ and live for Him. I'm going to surrender myself to God through faith in Jesus, the good news is it's not us at work alone to go to bring about that change in our life, but God is at work in us. This is the work of God, not just on the cross 2,000 years ago, but in our hearts, in our lives today, by His Spirit, bringing about transformation, giving us a new heart. And this is how Paul puts it. Throw up that verse there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but now much more, or not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, see there's a comma there? A comma, not a period? That's good. Because can you imagine if there was a period there? Okay, continue to work it out. It's your job now. Now that you've got a fresh start through Jesus to go and do better. But there's a comma and there's not a period, right? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. This is the good news, that Jesus has paid for our sin, that we can be forgiven and brought into a right relationship with God where God actually begins a work in us by His Spirit who He puts in our hearts. And I don't know how that all works metaphysically, but God begins a work, the work of change in us. Now, Paul says, you are called to cooperate with God. But it's not you ultimately that's doing this work of transformation. It's God in you. That's the good news. The kingdom begins within. It's the work of God when we surrender ourselves to Him through faith in His Son, Jesus. I don't know about you, but I just find that very encouraging. 
that it's God that makes us new. That is not just good advice, it's good, it's good news. Because I think, I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe you find yourself at a place where change just seems beyond your ability, beyond your wisdom, beyond your strength. You know, you're in some situation in your marriage or dealing with some addiction or some other problem and it just seems way bigger than you and you just feel hopeless and you feel powerless to change. The good news is that the change... that has worked in our life is change that is worked by God. It is His work in us. So, so it, the kingdom is not first about doing, Jesus says. It's not first about doing, go do. The kingdom is first about surrendering yourself, giving oneself to God. So what does that mean, that the kingdom begins within here in our last couple of minutes. Well, the first thing it means is that we need to be reconciled to God by repenting and believing the good news. That, that's the very first thing we need to do. That's where, that's where the kingdom of God begins. The way into His kingdom is, the, the way into fellowship with God is through faith in His Son, Jesus. So I wonder if there's some of you here today, like maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you've been going your way, your own life. Yeah, you've believed in God, but you've never really surrendered your life to Him. You've never followed. You've never repented of your sins and saying, my life now belongs to you. You are my Lord and Savior. I will follow you. Have your way in my life. Maybe that's what you, some of you, you need to do this morning. You need to repent and believe in the good news. And here in a moment, when I give you an opportunity just to respond to God's Word in whatever way you need to respond, here in prayer, I'll, I'll share with you a prayer that maybe you can use if that's something that you want to do today. You want to repent and believe the good news. You want a new heart. God, to do something new in you because your way just isn't working. And I wonder if there's some of us here this morning, like, like maybe, maybe we're Christians and we have been for a while, but we've kind of gone stale, just spiritually dry. And, and, it, and, and our life has become about just these external things, doing the right things, saying the right things, not doing the wrong things. But it's not something that's flowing out of our heart, out of our joy in God, out of our love for God. We've become law keepers, but not really God lovers. It's not where it's flowing from. And you find yourself spiritually dry this morning, and, and maybe what you need to do is you need to like invite God back to the center and just ask God, God, would you just increase my desire for you? So we need to be reconciled to God by repenting and believing the good news. And then, and then secondly, lastly, we need to share that with others. Jesus wasn't the only one who proclaimed the good news. Those who came into his kingdom, he gave that job. Now you go and you proclaim the good news. And that's what we are called to do. If the kingdom begins within, that's where it starts, a new heart then how do we go about working with God to, to, to extend and to build His kingdom? There's all sorts of ways to help people, to bring about positive change in the world and the people's lives of those around you. But the greatest change you can make is to share the good news of Jesus, to point people towards Jesus as the one who will satisfy their desires, the one in whom they will find 
perfect hope and joy and peace and love. So, who in your life, who's God placed in your life that you can share the good news with? Who needs that heart transformation? What would it look like for you, knowing that the kingdom begins within? It's not, it's not new legs people need. It's a new heart that comes through repenting and believing in the good news. Who is it that God might lay on your heart to go and in some way point them towards Jesus? Because that is what they need more than anything else. There's lots of needs out there. There's lots of ways to help people. There's nothing people need more than to know God and to have a new heart because out of that comes all sorts of transformation, marital change, healthy habits. You know, some scholars believe that um, the very first words of the Gospel of Mark are actually the title of the book. You see, back in the day when they, when they wrote their books, they didn't give nice titles that were on the front cover. Often the title was just the first sentence. And so those first words in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, the good news, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I used to read that and think, okay, well, now he's going to tell us the beginning of the story, and then he'll get to the end of the story. But actually, as I was studying this week, a lot of scholars believe that what that is is actually the title for the book. The name, of, the name of the book of Mark is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Which would kind of make sense why there's like this, there's no ending. Why does it not end? It's because it's the beginning. It doesn't have an ending. You are the ending, right? We are the sequel. This is the beginning we are the sequel of God's work to establish and to build His kingdom to the ends of the earth. Because that's what Jesus would say in Mark chapter 13, verse 20. And this gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So we are the ending, maybe is what Mark is saying, we are the sequel. God is still writing His story, the story of His kingdom, and He's writing it in and through us. And so I'm excited over these next 13 weeks as we continue to go through this gospel just to see what does the kingdom of God look like, and what does it look like to live out that revolutionary way of God in our own lives, in our world. It'll be fun. But this morning, just let us know that the kingdom of God begins within. It begins with a transformed heart. So let me invite you into a moment of prayer. If you want, you can bow your head and close your eyes. There will be a little prayer up there just if some of you this morning, like maybe you've never prayed a prayer like this, where you've actually done the, the one thing that Jesus calls us to do to respond to the reality of the good news, which is to repent and believe the good news, to trust in Him. And if that's something that you need to do, you want to do, you want that new heart, that new change, because life just, you know, your just way isn't working, and you want to do things God's way, this is how it begins. Maybe, maybe that's a prayer that you need to pray. 
Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've done that years ago and you've been walking with God, but again, maybe, maybe your relationship's growing a little stale and you're kind of going through the motions and maybe you just need to pray, God, would you just give me new fire? Would you rekindle my love for you so that what I do flows out of not just keeping rules, but out of love for you? Where Jesus says, the greatest command is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Just take, take a moment to ask God for what it is you need this morning. Maybe you want to ask God, God, who is it that you've placed in my life, in my family, my friends circle, my workplace, my school, my neighborhood? Who have you placed in my life that I can share your good news with? Or would you just lay someone on my heart? Maybe you want to ask him that. Father in heaven, we thank you for this good news of what you have done for us through your son, all the benefits that are ours through faith in Jesus, this new life that comes to us not by our own efforts, not by our own or works, putting into practice the things that you teach us to do, but comes about because of your work in us and for us. Lord, we want to cooperate with your work as you are bringing about your will in our lives. Lord, we just want to cooperate with you. And we want to live out your kingdom in our lives, the revolutionary nature of your kingdom. So Lord, would you do that work in us and would you do that work through us? And as we go through this book, this gospel over these weeks, Lord, would you just Show us what it would look like for us to live out your kingdom. I want you to stand, church, even at home where you're at in your living room. Why don't you stand and let's just finish this prayer time by praying this prayer that we probably all know really well, the Lord's Prayer. You might know it in King James Version English. So we might be uh, reciting it here in some different versions, but that's okay. This is the prayer that our Lord Jesus instructed us to pray. As we go into this final song of worship, why don't we pray this together? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen.